your skin looks incredible. <laughs> I'm having a good skin day. You are. Why do I look so blotchy? Are you freaking wearing makeup? What is happening with you? <laughs> I've started wearing makeup I think for you have. our podcast episodes. I, that's right. I want that in the next episode. <laughs> By the way, that comment gets yeah, kept. Hey everybody, it's Lance Dawson, and uh, welcome to another episode of Backstage Lowdown with my co-host Andrew Stewart. This week we have a consummate guitar player, one of the uh, premier musicians from that is Canada has produced. He has played with Brian Adams. He's currently playing with the Rodeo. He plays with the Jim Cuddy Band. He's worked with Sarah McLaughlin and Stephen Faring and Blackie and the Rodeo Kings, and just about every Canadian or significant Canadian rock band and country band that you can imagine. I mean, Colin James is even in there. Anyway, we are welcoming to Backstage Lowdown this week, Colin Cripps. Here we go, stay tuned. How you doing? I'm good. Good. Thanks. Good. Good. Well, let me let me start off with thanking you so much to, for taking the time to uh, to hang out with us today for for a little bit. I appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, pleasure. Pleasure. Well, Happy to do it. You've yeah. certainly been you've been a guest on on numerous podcasts and and television interviews and all sorts of things. So uh, I'm not sure what what made you think. You know what? I'd like to expand my exposure to at least nine other people. But hey, yeah. I'm gonna hang out with these guys. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, your invitation was uh, well, uh, well received. So let's yeah. say I was I was like intrigued by your uh, invitation. Now we do actually have a friend in common, Laura Scott. She was somebody okay. that I grew up with. Right. And Lance and I had gone to your recent concert at Center in the Square. And oh, I was yeah. talking to Laura about it afterwards. We went we went to the Friday night show. And I was saying that, like, that you were on fire that night. Like I thought your guitar playing was awesome. And so I was talking to her about that. And she said, you know what? You should ask him to, to be on the show. And I said, you think so? And she goes, yeah, he does this sort of thing all the time. So that, that's why I reached out. And, oh, well, and I yeah. do appreciate you. Yeah. Saying yeah, yes. so, so basically we're saying that Laura sold you out is what we're yeah, saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, she, yeah. Um, she set me up basically. Yeah, that's right. You really got to get like an unlisted number, my friend. That's uh, that's where we're at. Where did where did you grow up? Like, where is where's she's from? Like Guelph. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. Yeah. We both grew up in Guelph. Just a hop, skip, and a jump away from from where you grew up in Hamilton. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, good. The same hood. Well, and you've been no stranger to the KW area. I mean, we were just going through you know some of your accomplishments in the in the in the intro, and I know we we skipped a ton of them, but you know, going from Crash Vegas to, uh, it was Junk House. And I mean, they played the, yeah. the KW Blues Fest and you've been in this area for yeah, a ton of, ton of times. Yeah. yeah um, I have friends there, you know, I have a good, uh, 
I have a couple of really great friends there. One who just like who sort of moved there became a sort of uh, he, you know, transplanted champion for that area, which is is Bob Egan, who you know who is sure. rodeo and uh, and then I'm also good friends with um, f- who lives in Guelph is uh, Tom Bartlett, who's a you know a guitar builder and uh, and I talk to Tom all the time and uh, so yeah I have a long history. It's funny I was talking to a friend of mine yesterday who lives right near the Albion Hotel in Guelph. Like literally we're, he crossed the street and he used to- oh, no way. We were talking about, you know, he, he said, uh, he said, yeah, I used to go, like I literally would run across the street and see bands there all the time. And he says, do you know that place? And I said, I played there like <laughs> numerous times back in the late eighties, especially when things, that was a great venue for a like new band, you know, that to sure. go play. They were, so yeah, I have a good history in uh, in that area for sure. Oh, and the other place was um, what was the club uh, in Kitchener that uh, used to book a lot of bands? It was upstairs and Pop the uh, Gator. Pop the Gator, yeah, yeah. And I mean, there was the um, yeah Pop the Gator, and mm, gosh, there's a few. It's funny, you know. I, I definitely want to get into uh, to talking about you, but I don't know if you've heard. We had a we were just at a um, a movie premiere, a documentary called Rock This Town that really delved into the the music history of kw and and like from the early 60s this you know this guy went to uw and it was an engineer and there no one was having any fun there was no bands and so he started promoting being a promoter and i had no idea like bands like kiss played laurier you know oh yeah yeah steppenwolf like and and guelph as well have always had a steeped history in in live music so sure it's kind it's kind of sad we've lost a few we've lost uh we've lost the starlight over the the covid period and uh really yeah yeah a few a few venues that were really historic in this region rhapsody bar was a good supporter of live music the boathouse which you probably uh, played at at some Uh, point so yeah we've you know so it's always a big calling for people to you know keep supporting live music on whatever level but uh anyway so for sure and a lot of bands you know you have to always sort of remember like a lot of canadian bands or artists i mean their fundamental you know sort of apprenticeships were playing clubs all over the place you know if you lived in this area you know you did the 401 run was like you know that was uh for years sometimes that's how you built sort of like an audience you know, right. built your audience and built your craft and um so you know literally from you know windsor to i want to say montreal but you know but it does kind of count but literally from Windsor to Montreal, that, that sort of 401 corridor was really, that was the, that was sort of honestly more, I played more in that than anywhere else in Canada as, as a way of trying to, you know, get things going in bands and, and Kitchener, Waterloo, Guelph, all because of the, obviously because of the universities and um, those were like, those were staples for us. You know? Yeah. It and it's proximity to Toronto. I think a lot of people have been using it as yeah. you know, some stomping grounds to, okay, we're, we're prepping in KW and then we'll swing into to yeah. TO. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So Colin, here's an interesting question because, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'll say, call myself a fledgling musician, but anyway, um, I've always said that it's, you work so hard during that, uh, you know, on that corridor playing clubs. And and that's sort of what what I've always, always done. You work hard because you've got, you know, if you're lucky enough to have some originals to play and you got a lot of covers to play to be entertaining, um, do you find now that when you finally get to a level that you've achieved playing with, like I said, Blue Rodeo and all these other bands that are, are playing yeah. venues like Kitchen, Kitchen or Center and Square, rather, 
Yeah. Do you find that it's it's a little easier because you've only got Blue Rodeo stuff to learn, right? For that night, and it may—I mean, you guys put on such a spectacular show, and you always walk away with, you know, at least a, two solid hours of, of playing. Yeah. Uh, so it's not easy, but I—I'm just saying, compared to going into a club and, and having to do, you know, a nine till one a.m. Yeah. You know what? What do you think? Compare, um, compare those two events. I, you know, playing clubs is challenging when you're for two reasons for me because the audience is more generally more intimate, you know, there's sort of, they're definitely, there's more proximity to the audience. And a lot of right. times they're like, yeah. they're just right there. So right. no matter how skilled or how seasoned you feel you are as a player, there's a certain amount of vulnerability between you and the audience, at the, especially at the beginning of a show. Like when you're trying to just establish your, you know, how it's going to feel and sound. And, and so right. in those situations, that's, that's definitely more challenging and also can be more rewarding. Right. And, but when you've established that relationship and the rewards are great, even though you might have to play like two or three sets and you have to, you know, it's a bit more of a grind. You're out till two in the morning or three in the morning, you know, those feel like, that feels like a really good workout, you know, for lack of a better word. It feels right. like it justifies the, all of the prep or maybe the homework you did and, and you just simply wanting to get better at your craft, you know, at better at your work. There's, that is a really great playing, uh, you know, that's a really great playground for that. And it really matters. It really does matter. So when you've got that under your belt and then all of a sudden, okay, now you're playing theaters and it's like, it's a two hour show and the audience, and you know, you're, you're playing to the converted, so to speak. Right. And the, um, and the intimacy is, is there for sure, but it's a little bit, a little bit, you, you have a little more armor, you know, between you and the audience. Then the, I think the psychology becomes a little different. While you might think the show is easier because it's a shorter number a period of time and, and um, but the challenge of meeting that expectation is greater because now the stakes are so-called higher. You know, people have spent a lot more money to come into a show. Right. There's more at stake in terms of the validity of your being able to play in that room. You know, like every room has a certain honor to it in my way of seeing it. If you honor the room, it's because you've been, uh, you know, you've been, you know, given the opportunity to get to play in that place, which many others have worked hard and to get to be able to play in that place. So there's sort of, for me at least, um, there's an unspoken sort of honor to that room, which makes it sometimes the work just as hard. You know, I might feel yeah. it in different ways with a small crowd because they're right here in my face. And I'm like, oh right. shit, don't, you know, don't screw up or don't. But, you know, the pressure, let's say, to play a great show in a, center in the square is just as um is still just as challenging and as much work as playing three you know three sets a night in a in a club that's a really interesting question well because i know you did part of the apprenticeship of it and and the other is is uh, proving that you deserve to be on on the big stage right no i think you answered it really well the it seems like it's a, it's a really interesting algorithm i never really thought of that because as you said, when you're playing clubs, the challenge is I now have to win over an audience that's right there. They have complete access to letting me know how I'm doing. And the satisfaction of winning over that audience is awesome. Yeah. Yes. But when you get to the level that you're at, now you have to almost defend it every time you take the stage. Like we deserve yeah. to be here. 
I've now, I've yet to see, I've been watching Blue Rodeo, gosh, since I was in university and is it Bobby Wiseman was playing on keys back then? And yeah. do you know what I mean? They've had different iterations. I have yet to see a yeah, bad yeah. show. I've yet to yeah. see a bad show from those guys. So you, you, and Andrew was right. We went and saw the December show at Center in the Square and it was, it was phenomenal. Oh, good. Um, you guys just Great. crushed it. Was that your, now, let me ask you this. Was that your first night leg of, of a new tour? Do you recall? Post COVID, I guess. Well, post uh, and pre, because uh, then everything got shut down again, right? In January. Yeah, probably was, you know, it, which also speaks to the, you know, it's, I guess from, you know, it, it speaks to the idea that, you know, we're hungry to do, to, to perform and do good shows. Sure. And when you don't, you know, when you have this lull and you don't get to play, it's it all feels kind of fresh again you know even though it might seem like you know yes play these songs you know more times than i can think or count but but the value is still the same you know it's like putting on a great show and and feeling that connection between us because when you haven't seen the other guys for a while you know it's like it's like i guess it's like any team you know and it becomes its own thing like there's this organic connection there's like some chemistry role playing and the chemistry it all just kind of coalesces in this way on stage that is not always definable but you know when you're doing well as a group and there's a certain elevation that happens where you can just play the music and somehow it it elevates itself beyond your expectation, you know, as a group. And so when you haven't played for a while, yeah, this, you, that's what you want. You want some kind of like, you know, you want that, that high again. And uh, I guess I, I feel lucky when that happens. And I guess kid, that's also a great venue. Like some venues just easily lend themselves to that possibility. Right. Like you go in, it's like, okay, we played here a hundred times. It always sounds great in there. So now we just have to think about how to play. We're not looking at it and going, oh, you know, the, the room, the acoustics suck and I can't hear, you know, there's all the right. things that can get in the way. It yeah. was, um, yeah, it's a great room. It's, um, it's a great hall to play. So yeah. well, at I'm the end of the that, day, you, know, you guys look like you had it fun. Came off, you know, because yeah. you also have to remember, you know, just to add one little thing to it too, for, for me is when you're in the moment, you don't always capture your own moments you know it's the audience is capturing the moments because they're because they're absorbing what you're presenting as a band but i'm i know when things are going well and i feel like i'm having a good show and i feel like i can tell jim's having a great show and everything's i can sense all of that yeah but sometimes those things that happen are so in the moment i don't need i don't really know what the fuck i'm doing sometimes i'm just (laughs) doing stuff you know I'm i'm playing and i'm reacting or i'm trying to you know, I'm trying to engage with my bandmates in a, in certain ways that it's just like it goes by faster than I realize. You know, for sure, what's happened, and I and I love that part of being a, a musician. So, so it, you know, it's nice to hear is the feedback. It's nice to hear the feedback that it was like, oh, you didn't go in the ditch, or you didn't, you know, the band <laughs> didn't like, you know, the band didn't uh, yeah. didn't screw it up. Yeah. So. No, not at all. There were some points that you guys would just come together as a band and kind of form this little circle. Yeah. And it seemed like you were just playing for each other and it wasn't about everybody else that was behind your backs. Right. And that you were just having this intimate moment and really mm. enjoying the stage. Yeah. Um, which, which was a lot of fun to see. And because yeah. it was kind of that, first show back and still working out the 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 kinks and so forth i yeah. remember one point where 
Jim wants to send everybody off uh, off stage, <laughs> and and nobody's picking up the cues. Yeah, and, yeah until yeah. finally he says, "You guys need to get off." <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that was yeah, fun. Yeah. It, it, you know, yeah. it, it makes it real, and as yes. opposed to this totally polished show, and yes. it makes it enjoyable. And uh, like everybody was laughing. That's totally it. You know, it was really, it really is part of. It is part of the Blue Rodeo, you know, uh, sort of canon in that, you know, we do rehearse, but we don't rehearse very often. So it always leaves a certain amount of that. Um, you know, there's there's always a bit of, uh, you know, some fray at the end of things. You know, you never know if everything's going to be completely fall into place or it's going to end up going into the ditch. Right. And there's there's a beauty to that is it always keeps us all on our toes and we all sort of we would not want to be a band that's just like going through the motions per se, even though there's a predictable amount of the catalog that we have to play because it's so popular and people, you know, love those songs, but there's always a certain element to what we throw, what, you know, gets put in. That's like, I don't know. This, okay. Today, this might work tomorrow. It might not work as, you know, planned or it. And so there's a, there's sort of a, you know, there's a part of that's built in to right. those songs and that was an, that's an example of it where we do this little breakdown thing and and to be honest with you you know most of the time it goes really well because we kind of know there's a you know there's a certain you, there's a certain order to it but sometimes it just it goes off the rails because <laughs> because because you know greg comes in on you know his verse comes in on a different at a different point and everybody's like well, he's not on the one now. He's like, a, he's on the three. And now everybody has to turn around. We have to, you know, we have to turn it around or we have to. So that's the, that's the beauty of that. Uh, uh, Andrew, can we get a, I want that clip of Colin, just what he just said about Greg Keeler. I need that clipped and I need it to send everybody to Monday morning whiskey immediately. Everybody in my band. I want to hear that clip. Send it to everybody. Oh, oh, yeah, Greg yeah. came in on the, the two and whatever. I just, I'm telling yeah. you, I got to silence Turn these guys. But no, you know what, um, Colin, that's, that's fantastic. Cause in, in athletics, they talk about like, there's a difference between automaticity. Like you want things to be like, like you said, it, it's automatic, but then it's not genuine. You got to hit that flow state where you're just so in the moment. Yeah. Um, and then I'm not even going to call it an error, but whatever, you know, a wrinkle that nobody left yeah. the stage. I yeah. thought that was especially kind of neat just because for that split second, we weren't watching Blue Rodeo, you know, perform. We were kind of like hanging out at the jam house. Yeah. Working out. Oh, yeah. And so everybody was in on it. And that was that yeah. was kind of fun. So yeah. um, no kudos. Yeah. It was a yeah. good night. Thanks. Thanks. But yeah. Let me ask you another question, because I've always been curious about this. Describe gig day to me. So you've got a gig. It's it's I think an eight o'clock start for the opening act. Uh, they were good, too, by the way. And then you guys take the stage at nine ish. Uh, yep. So 9 p.m. So what's what's gig day look like for you? Any like, well, is there a, a special a, routine? Let's say we're on a run like we're like, let's say we're on a run of uh, shows where we're, you know, we're on a bus and we're, you know, we're playing a show and uh, say the, the night before we played in um, Montreal and now we're coming to Kitchener to play. Right. So we would typically come overnight um, from Montreal on the bus and we all have, you know, we all have our bunks and we sleep on the bus and, uh, and then we wake up in uh, Kitchener and the, the crew obviously has lo early load ins because of, you know, all the production. So generally we're in, you know, we're on site, you know, by 10 in the morning of that day. And, you know, we as a, uh, 
band individuals tend to all sort of disperse because we spend enough time together and everybody's got their own routines. You know, some people, some people are up early, like no matter what, uh, I'm an early kind of riser per se. And, you know, Jim likes to run when the weather's appropriate, he likes to run. So he'll go and do a run. And other guys, uh, some people sleep till two and, you know, everybody's got their own routine. And then generally, you know, we, Jim and I might go for lunch or we might, you know, it might be a threesome or something. We just go and get some lunch and then walk around just to see what's, uh, you know, see what's out there. And, and then uh, we have four o'clock sound checks on show days or four o'clock. And they generally last anywhere from half an hour to 40 minutes. And then we have dinner, we have early dinner. And then say after that, between that and showtime, it's just kind of whatever anybody does, you know, like uh, Jim does, or Greg does a lot of yoga. So he'll do yoga before he plays. Cause I think that really, that really helps him. And, you know, he's, he's got, um, he's got diabetes, which he's had for a long time helps him, you know, just helps him warm up and he'll do sure. yeah, for a lot sure. of stretching and a lot of uh, just, you know, just sort of getting his body sort of calmed down to the point where he can centers the energy thing. And, you know, yeah. And, um, and then basically, you know, we just tend to, you know, we probably all start hanging out by around eight o'clock backstage, you know, and the usual news of the day or right. Did you, what joe said leah you know it's just usual boy you know it's it's locker room boy pre-show you know connecting to the each of us cool. in a way that's probably it's just unspoken how it, you know it what the value is of it and uh, and then there's some warm-up you know i might i'd certainly do a little bit of guitar warming up and that's about it like it, it it's not you know every band and every artist that uh, i've ever sort of been friends with or known or seen you know some have very regimented things and uh and some are so just sort of casual about it it's, it's amazing to me you know right. some artists i know were just like you know like masterful singers who you know and you hear about guys who warm up for like half an hour before the show and they're doing a lot of because they need to do that for their for their voice you know and others who just like they literally just walk out on stage and it's just like bang plug in and yeah. go yeah, yeah yeah so yeah. but that's that's it i would say that is a reasonable routine for rodeo on a cool. on a show like on especially when we're on a run you know yeah when gotcha. we're doing one-offs you know when it's one-offs we basically all just show up individually right. or together you know um well, and, i was thinking uh, with kw because everybody sort of lives within at least you know an hour hour and a half of yeah, KW. Like I, yeah we just drove down i think jim and i you know drove down together we just you know right we, we're yeah, so it's not All that right. glamorous. <laughs> Let me take you back to a little earlier on in your career. You grew up in Hamilton, which has always been a hotbed for music. Who are some of the the other musicians that you guys kind of worked with and kind of learned oh. from and uh, kind of really, really pushed you to become the musician that you are? Well, you know, for me, it was, I would say that I started working in a music store when I was 14. In Hamilton called Reggie's Music. I was really fortunate because I was just this young wide-eyed kid who you know who didn't know how to play guitar but I wanted to learn how to play guitar so I literally went in the store one day and and I you know and I said uh, I wanted to buy a guitar and learn how to play and I but I didn't have any money and so he gave me a part-time job as a way to and I was just infatuated with guitars and music and the whole thing so so 
I started working there when I was 14 and I eventually I worked there off and on until I was 23, even when I was going to university. And so in that time, I would say that I really developed and I had bands, like I started bands when I was 16. But in that time, I was really meeting like a whole cross section of musicians who would come in to buy strings, picks, guitars, right. whatever it was. And it so it really crossed a gamut of like guitar players who were some were jazz influence players some are country guys some guys were rock guys some guys were um you know especially by you know late 70s to early 80s you know i use all the musical influences of the day and i was certainly no less influenced by what was out there and some of those guys would come in and so i i i learned a lot from guys just coming in the store event you know initially so specific guys i would say you know there was a few guys who who were uh, I took one guy I took lessons from for a while is he was a I took classical lessons for a short time probably about six months and this guy named this guy's name was Charlie Robichaud and he was just like this really classic disciplined classical guy sweet right. guy you go to his house and he would show you but very fundamental classical style playing right but I was also you know listening to the who and I loved all the classic sort of British players at the time. But then I also listened to a lot of fringe players who were part of that. It became eventually big influences for me, guys like Roy Buchanan and um, Bert Yanch. And, you know, some of the guys that were sort of on the outside of per se, the, the, the guitar heroes, even though I knew those names, but I was always looking for guys who were a little bit more under the radar, so to speak, but yeah. they were just phenomenal players. So those those tended to be more my influence guys from Hamilton specifically. I wouldn't know that there was one particular guitar player that, that did that to me. It was really a bunch of uh, like, for example, I mean, the one guy I met when I was 18 and we've been friends ever since we've done, a, you know, a lifetime's worth of stuff together was this guy, Tom Wilson and, and Tom, Tom Wilson. Who's that guy? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well tom wilson was you know tom wilson was one of the first guys i met who was kind of my age you know he was yeah. he's a couple years older than me but he was this guy who was like even when he was 18 like he was just like driven and had a sense of himself as as a i'm gonna be um you know a musician and so he would come in the store and i was very influenced by his how just how tenacious he was you know and I realized like, oh, you like, you kind of got to stick your neck out a bit and you got to go and like, you got to have a band and you got to, you know, try and play in clubs. And so I got to tell you, know, you a story. I, I went out West when I was in my early twenties with this buddy of mine named Tim, I left him out there. I came back to Ontario, but anyway, we got, uh, got to be friends with these couple of the guys who had this, uh, who had a, had a dog. And every time that they put junk house on the dog would just start howling. I have no idea what it was about junk house, but the dog loved it. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> it was crazy. Tom will love that. You know, <laughs> you, you have to tell him that. Yeah. Well, we, we hope oh, to yeah. meet him at some point. <laughs> He'll say that the music had a spiritual connection with the dog, you know, and yeah. it, it speaking on a whole other language, right? Totally. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I mean, my influence is directly, I guess, to be, uh, I don't want to try to evade the question, but I just, there weren't specific guitar players that 
okay, there's a few guys I would I would see that I was in that, and especially when I early on that just blew me away, like Jack the Kaiser. Jack the Kaiser back then, when I this would be around 1979, 1980. And at that time I was listening to a lot of different players. Like I was such a like broad palette guy. I listened to like, you know, I loved um I loved classic players, you know, I loved all the, um, you know, the, the names that everybody knew, but I also like these fringe guys. I love this guy named Cliff Gallup, who was, was Gene Vincent's guitar player in the fifties. And anyways, I went and saw Jack DeKaiser once. This is before he, he, uh, he was playing with Ronnie Hawkins and he was yeah. quite young too. So he's probably about five years older than me. And I just remember him being like this, you know, if I was 18, he was in his early twenties and he was just like, just fantastic guitar player at, at that age. And then a few years later, I really got into rockabilly and that early sort of classic country swing style guitar playing. And by that point, Jack had a band called the Bobcats, which was this classic kind of like Stray Cats style, you know, super cool yeah, band. Very cool. Somewhere and, between the Stray Cats and Chris Isaac is where I would exactly, sort of put uh, yeah, Jack DeKaiser, yeah. right? And Jack was just phenomenal. He was one of my, I love, I still love the guy. I love his playing. So he was, and he was from Hamilton and I didn't know he was from Hamilton because at that point he'd already moved to Toronto and he was, you know, but he grew up in Hamilton. So that also made it sort of like, oh, he's like, he's one of the Hamilton guys. Right. Right. And so he would have been definitely an early influence to me. Um, the greatest influence to me would have been later. And that would have been around, uh, so like, like if we're talking Hamilton, you know, yeah. Uh, the greatest influence for me would have been this guy named Bill Dylan, and Bill Dylan was um, he kind of well he did he became kind of like the A list guy in the eighties and nineties through all the work that he did with Daniel Lanois, and okay. and Bill was one of my you know closest friends. I mean, he literally like, he ended up living with me in the for a couple of years, and. Um, so he was a huge influence on my playing and my whole idea of how the guitar could play a role in music mm -hmm. or in a band. But that came, you know, later. That was like, ten, you know, I'd already been playing for 10 years at that point. I was trying to figure out a lot of things. So, right. so yeah. Well, you definitely have like your own individual sound now. I was actually just talking with one of my buddies who plays guitar too, and we were talking about the Colin Cripps sound. And, right. You know, just sort of the, the choices that you make. Like I really enjoyed, um, I don't know what everyone else was listening to at the Blue Rodeo concert, but I was <laughs> listening to the guitar stuff. Not that Jim, Jim cool. was nailing his vocals, but anyway. Um, yeah, I just, I really like like the, the choices you make in terms oh, of, you know, uh, I don't need to shred this. I can just space it out. And it's, it was just really tasteful and, and sounded oh, awesome. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, I had to make a choice today, Colin, because uh, we can go. I know you have a good collection of, of guitars and amps and stuff. And I was promising Andrew not to go down the wormhole of, uh, of gear. <laughs> this would be I don't a, mind. Totally, a totally different podcast. I knew yeah. it was going to happen. But I know. I know. Um, <laughs> how do you decide? So you've got lots of great guitars and, uh, and amps. So and Andrew and I were trying to remember, was it was it a Vox AC 30 that you had? In Kitchener, yep. what do you that's what you gig with, right? That's the yeah. okay, those, those, that's yeah. And how do you decide which guitars to bring 
And, and then I had an adjunct question that went back to me, hey, describe your gig day. So you get off the bus, or in this case, you get out of the car with Jim and say, hey, let's go, you know, walk around KW. Where do those guitars go? Like somebody's got to be looking after those things. And tune yeah, but so well, which guitars a, do you choose and what happens? I have road guitars that are kind of like, like I think of it this way, if, you know, for your listeners or people who are not as, um, you know, is not as familiar with guitars and their role and why this one, that sure. one. Is it all just because they look cool or they're different colors and so on? It's just, you know, it's just cosmetics. Right. But, but truly, like, like guitars for me are like, they're like paintbrush uh, colors, you know? It's like you have a toolbox and those colors represent possibilities. And some colors are the best possibility for, for using a certain color in a song or the way that you're able to sort of uh, speak the best in that song as a way it's either distinguishes some part of it that's just different enough or has the best tonality given the the rest of the landscape so I have you know I can have a toolbox that has guitars that are really sort of fundamental guitars for me on the road and they basically stay out on the road all the time you know and I have a tech and I have like somebody who sets everything up and and um and i you know i sort of have my i have my like toolbox you know sure. right beside me and so the choices on the guitars are based around you know just around the, the sort of idea that i can paint a, a certain picture with one guitar maybe a little better than the uh, other guitar and then vice versa you know so if you go through those guitars um i don't have like it seems like i have a lot of guitars that are like you know why do you have all these guitars? But I mean, I have an acoustic, which is, I got acoustic and I have a Rickenbacker 12 string, which is nothing sounds like a Ricky 12 string. So for songs that in the old catalog, you know, like rodeo songs, um, you know, there's a couple of old songs that um, like, uh, like till I am myself again. And for example, that, right. you know, that, that lead guitar is a Ricky 12. It's actually one that it's that guitar. And I loaned it to Greg you know, to do that song. Right. And so, so that's a fundamental sound for that song. And then there's other songs that, that over the years I've used the Ricky 12 string on the recordings. So that's what I use that for. And then there's a Fender Telecaster, which is kind of like, literally it's, it's like, you know, it's the socket wrench of guitars, you know, you could play anything with it and it generally will speak the well for almost every genre of music. So, right in a pinch, I could just play the Telecaster for the whole night. But, you know, but then it becomes a little bit of a, um, you know, it's like painting everything with one shade. Yeah. So I have a Telecaster that covers a lot of territory, anything more country-esque, more twangy, more. And then I, um, and then I, uh, and then I have a couple of boutique guitars that I, that I just, uh, or sorry, I have an SG. I have my, my other main guitar is a Gibson SG, which is kind of like the guitar that has just more horsepower. You know, so for so for songs that need more dynamics, you know, there's a bigger solo and a bigger, uh, you know, there's a bigger presentation. That guitar just does that for me. It allows me to have like fifth gear, you know, right. and sometimes I need that. Telly's just not quite enough. It does. It's great, but it doesn't get me to fifth gear. Right. So then I have, so I have an SG. And then I have a couple of like other guitars that are sort of like, they're just basic they're sort of boutique you know versions of what i i like to play but i don't i don't have to have them there 
but they cover in case something goes on wrong with the other song with the other guitars sure so that's it you know and it's funny because everybody's like why do you have so many guitars out there and i go you have no idea what like i have six <laughs> guitars on stage that you can see and they're all completely different you know go to a youtube right. show go to tom petty <laughs> go to a tom petty show i used to go to, i used to go and see tom petty um, and uh, I was fortunate enough that we were friends, you know, I had friends with uh, one of the, the members of the band. And I used to stand side stage at Tom Petty shows and Tom Petty, who basically is a rhythm player, right? Right. Change every song. He had a different guitar. And I saw his guitar rack in the back because his tech would just bring out guitars for him. You know, he had like 35 guitars on the road. That's wow. crazy. But that's that's what guys do, right? Like, yeah, yeah. Edge had, you know, I, I know Edge's tech, so I've I've hung out many times with Dallas under the deck. Edge has fifty guitars on the road. Yeah, it hurts something crazy so, that like you know, it'll be so a truck bring, just for his guitars. I have six guitars, and everybody's like, "Oh my god, you have so many guitars!" <laughs> I'm like, "Look at it. This here's the here's the food groups. You know, I bought right. the big food groups in Guitar World. You know." Wilco, you go and see Wilco on the road and their full band, yeah. like Jeff Tweedy's got like 20 guitars, you know, yeah. it's just because he can do it because he's like, yeah. hey, man, I, I like guitars. Yeah. So I'd like to think I'm moderate in my excessive, uh, you know, presentation. If we, if we rewind the tape to just to clarify, I didn't say, uh, why do you have so many? Because yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I love that stuff and totally. Yeah totally get it yeah. i mean i would just try yeah. to explain sometimes you know even to my wife and say well yeah she's well why you know you got an acoustic you get an electric why what's with all the other ones right <laughs> like well yeah. the paintbrush analogy might black come in and white you know yeah. you need colors in black and white yeah and for yeah, a while so there i was uh, i was bringing home like you know hey i got this great guitar pick but it came with this guitar so you know <laughs> yeah, but I think yeah. she might be on to me so yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah i don't know colin i think we've got a yeah. mutual friend in uh in Mark Stutman and, and the boys yep, at Folkway. Yep. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I think that uh, Kim, my wife, is just praying that he moves that store out of town. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I uh, I get it honestly. I've been doing, you know, it started when I worked, started working in the music store. I just, for some reason, when I, just from day one, I was just interested in old guitars. Back then, they were used guitars. And uh, they have been extremely good to me you yeah. know, in every way, like I bought and sold stuff to pay my bills when I had no money. I've, you know, made uh, a measurable number of friends from this, whole, the whole community of vintage instruments and stuff. And, and, um, you know, it's honestly, it's afforded me this really great situation and to be part of a community. So for me, it's like, and I'm doing, I do it for a living. So it just seems natural to me, you know, that I, that I'm allowed to have that opportunity. And yeah. I also feel really, you know, I've also been a, an endorser and an ambassador for all the guys that, that, you know, like all those guitars you see on stage that Jim plays, I got them all those guitars, bunch of the Greg guitars. I got them all those guitars, Basil's bass, you know, the bass that he plays that's yep. totally yep. beat now. I got yeah. him that bass in 1990, you know? 
I love the stories about you kind of brokering all these deals to kind of get guitars into, into the hands of other people and, uh, you know, just making other people happy with, with the opportunity to actually play such a guitar. I love Jim's, uh, 335. I got to throw that in there at that show. He had a, um, what is, is, what is that? A 68 or something? I don't know. It was a beautiful 67. That's the only one one you're on. This is yeah, only what I've ever got him. I've never got him that. He bought that guitar when he was living in New York. Him and when him and Greg were living in New York in the early '80s, this is this is like five years before Blue Rodeo that he bought that guitar, uh, and he was a, and he was a waiter. So that's the only guitar um, that he doesn't that he has that I didn't that I didn't find for him because wow. as he got more and more popular and more able to get things, you know, him and Greg. Sure. They would come to me, you know, it's like 35 right. years ago. And they say, oh, you know, what should I say? This is what you need, you know? And I said, <laughs> nice. you mean a telly? Here's the telly you should have. So, <laughs> you know, so it really has been a very rewarding thing for me. It's not, you know, I, I get a lot of joy out of the fact that I've been able to provide that for my friends, you know, and it's just, it's just yeah. a thing, you know? I mean, I, I, yeah. Uh, and along the way, I've obviously, you know, mo- a lot of the guitars I have on the road, I've had them for. That Ricky I bought in 1986, you know, it's been on yeah. everything, everything, and I loaned it out. It's on hip records. It's on, you know, it, it's, uh, I paid $400 for it. So it's, wow. it has a lot of value as an instrument, you know, not just as like a vintage Ricky now, you know? Right. So, yeah. So you've so, known those guys for a while, the transition to joining Blue Rodeo in, you know, oh, yeah. in 2013. Oh, um, yeah. A little bit, I mean, for the, from the band, a little bit of a necessity, because I know uh, Greg's uh, capabilities at that point were, were I might yeah. get, do I have that right? That, yes. That, that's where they're yeah, totally in. right. Yeah. So that wasn't a new relationship. You guys have, have known each other for years. Oh, we've been, well, no, when Greg and I started, when, when Crash Vegas started in 1988, Greg yeah. and I were the guitar players. Right, right. Okay. And that, so there's all that early stuff with Crash and then, you know, all the stuff we did for the first few years. And then, you know, early 90s, I mean, oh, so, you know, Crash Vegas was managed by the same guys, uh, Blue Rodeo, for the first few years. We're on the same label. Right. We, we shared the same rehearsal space for the eight years that Crash Vegas was together. It was Blue Rodeo and Crash Vegas. It was just us. We had this space we shared and ran it together. And and then I started working with um, you know, uh, so I was always around. I played on a, I played on one of the rodeo records in the early nineties. Um, this record called Tremolo. I played on that record. And then Jim and I started, I've been with Jim on his solo record since day one. And I think that started in 96. So that's right. What's that? 27 years, 26 years. So, you know, it's just been like, I've been part of that family for 30, what is it? 34 years now, you know? So yeah, the evolution into the band and all of that, was just a consequence of, of time and, and, um, and Greg's situation. And, uh, and then my thing with Jim has just been, you know, it's just been there since day one. So, yeah. so that goes back to that, that chemistry we were talking about earlier, right? Yeah, it's it's just a long, you know, to be in a band with those guys at this point, like if somebody had come in, you know, 10 years ago to try and be that guy, I don't know that it would have been as easy for them, for everybody. Because, you no. know, there's also with bands, you know, every band has a certain 
especially after so many years, you know, you know, if you've been in bands, it's like, there's a certain dynamic and there's politics or there's a certain chemistry that's like, right. you know, who's a new guy? Like what, you know, he's screwing with the vibe. So yeah. it's that kind of thing, you know? So I, I have so much history already that it was like, just easy to step was, into. It didn't need to be, you know, it wasn't like we were trying to figure out, you know, who I was and what I did and, you know, and vice right. versa. Right. And yeah. you're not trying to redo all that old music either. You just, you're, you're playing, playing it essentially as it was written and then putting, yeah. putting your own, your own vibe, bringing your own tone to all yeah. of the new stuff. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, a, it's a, it's a real gift when you get to play with a bunch of guys that you really enjoy, you know, too. Yeah. Cause sometimes you can see bands where, you know, they're, they're okay on stage or they're good on stage, but you can definitely get the idea that off stage these four or five guys have nothing to do with each other. And it's, yeah. it's kind of nice when you can see a band where, Hey, these guys genuinely enjoy each other, whether they're, I think the audience you know, can feel that. I mean, even if they love the yeah, songs and they'll go and pay the ticket because they want to hear those songs and they're, they're accepting of the fact that, you know, these two or three people don't actually like each other anymore, but, and so then it's just, it's just commerce, you know, at that point, um, that's kind of a tragedy. And, you know, we've witnessed it ourselves, you know, in, in bands that we were, you know, we've been fans of over the years and, you know, life goes on. People do yeah. people, you know, but you're right. We don't have that. We don't have that dynamic at all, you know, which is thankfully, which is, it's just great, you know? So we're all too old now to fight over things that aren't going to really, what are you fighting over at this point? You know? No, for sure. <laughs> now everybody really just knows you as a guitarist, but they don't always think about you as a music producer. Okay. Yeah. What are some of the spots that you've been able to, to work out of that you've really enjoyed some of your favorite studios and, okay. and why, and is there any that, uh, that are still on your list to go out and, and work out of whether it's actually as a musician or, or as a music producer? Sure. Um, well, I have certainly have favorite studios that I've worked at. I've, I've been really, really, again, yeah, I, it's a good question. I'm, I've been fortunate to work at a lot of great studios, including classic ones like Ocean Way and, and in Los Angeles and um, and the old Gold Star Studio, which was where Pet Sounds was done. I worked in that room. I worked uh, at a studio in London that's just phenomenal studio called British Grove Studios, which is owned by Mark Knopfler. That's probably the greatest studio I've ever been in other than Abbey Road. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, that studio, British Grove Studios in London. Um, in Canada, you know, there's some really good studios in Canada. Um, I think my personal favorite studio is the Warehouse in Vancouver. It's Brian, Brian Adams Studio. It's just a phenomenal studio, uh, especially Studio 2, which is the main, the main studio. There's basically three levels there. But Studio 2 there is just, it's just as world-class as you could ask for. Uh, wow as the studio goes and I've done, a, you know, I did a, I did a lot of records at the bathhouse, which is um, the tragically hip studio in Kingston, just outside of Kingston. And I, I probably over the last 25 years, I would say of all the records I've produced that I would say, you know, at least 60, 70% of them I did at the bathhouse. And, um, that was always a great, that's been a great studio for me as much because of the way that it was, the way that it was put together. 
And the way that it was put together was kind of based on this in, influence. Um, you know, when I was in Crash Vegas, the first record we did, we worked at the studio. We were the first artist, uh, first band at this studio in New Orleans that Daniel Lanois had set up called Kingsway Studios, right in the French Quarter. Right. And it became a legendary studio over the course of the following 10 years. It started in like 89 and it went to, I think about 2000. But we were the first band in there and the paint was still wet, you know, and, and it was this grand old mansion that he had converted basically to the idea of an open concept studio, which was Dan's whole thing. And so everybody that was influenced by that concept, which he, you know, he had started in the mid 80s with with his with all the work he'd done with like Brian Eno and then you two and Peter Gabriel and on and on and on and on. That became sort of like the formula for way studios would then become possible instead of them being these sort of segregated, you know, here's the control room and here's the recording floor and that. So that influence was definitely from Dan and anybody that went to work at Kingsway, because after us, there was like the hip went there, Blue Rodeo went there, you know, bands from all over the world ended up making records at Kingsway. Very so cool. when the hip, when the hip, they did basically their version of Kingsway at, by buying this old farmhouse called uh, the Bat House in Bath, Ontario. And that place became kind of the open concept version of a recording studio where like the console was in the living room, you know, or the dining room. And then you could record anywhere in the house and it was open and, you know, you would just... And um, so I did, um, I did a lot of records there and a lot of other bands did there too, before they went on like Blue Rodeo did a, you know, did a record at the bathhouse and then realized that they could do their own version of that. So that's what, that's what the woodshed is, which is the studio here in Toronto, the Blue Rodeo studio. And we've done lots of records there now. Um, I've done a lot of records there with, with the band and with Jim and, and with some other artists that I've, brought there and uh and it, it too is like this sort of open room concept so so they're all great studios in in a certain way but then you know if there's legendary studios that i just walk in and i go oh my god like everything just sounds amazing everything's possible in this place you know those ones that i mentioned would certainly be amongst them yeah 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 so oh that's very cool yeah and abbey road i never worked in abbey road but uh but we were fortunate enough about six years ago to get a private tour in abbey road and i've studied that studio since you know i was in my 20s so i knew all the little things to look at and i was sort of pointing them out to the guys things that people wouldn't necessarily have paid any attention to because they're just like you know but I was saying, look at those floors. Those are parquet floors that have been there since 1933. You know, and if you look at pictures of the Beatles in Studio Two, like nothing in this room has ever been touched since like 1955. So stuff like that, you know, like that was like that must have been so cool was, for you to go into that, that room and have and really have studied oh, studied the history of that room and how it yeah. may have changed or didn't. Yeah. The floor hasn't changed at all in, in Abbey Road. They haven't changed the floor in Studio One or Studio Two. They've changed the control rooms with modernizing equipment and stuff. But those floors, like if you walk in there, it's literally as it was. Even the, even the 
acoustic baffling is the same. They just, they just haven't, they knew like, don't ever mess with this. Yeah. I can see you just feeling starstruck because of this room, mm -hmm. just as much as when you're meeting a, a guitar legend that, yeah. uh, that you listened oh, yeah. to growing up, but just yeah. the opportunity to walk in that room where all of this great music has been made. Yeah. 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 It's, it's, uh, yeah, it was humbling. <laughs> What's next on your to-do list like you've accomplished a lot as a guitar player producer writer right so you also write songs so let's not forget that um do you have any anything left that you're sort of thinking this is a, i need to do this or i want to do this not particularly no i you know I, I don't have any like i don't have any grand you know vision or anything like that my main thing is to to just be present enough in the work that i have going on that i can you know, I feel like I'm giving, I'm giving something to it, you know, and uh, I mean, it sounds humbling, you know, to say it, but I just, you know, the whole idea for me is like, the work is the most important thing. You know, I, I, I look at projects or I look at the bands and, and um, the opportunities that come and I just think, I mean, am I, am I the right person for this? And uh you know, do I, I still love playing. So I'm still always challenged by that. That instrument to me is like a lifelong education. So I feel like that's my, you know, that's where my head's at these days, you know, to, to, you know, have a hit record or anything like that. Nobody could ever have predicted their works, out, you know, sort of journey or destiny anyway. So I just feel right. like my sort of mantra is the same. It's like, I just want to do the, I just want to do the work well when I'm doing it and I I'm committed to it. And the same goes for playing live. You know, like if, if I'm in a band and I'm playing live, I take it like I want it, you know, I, I want it to be great. So I work at that sort of from that side of the fence. And I, you know, I don't, I don't have any aspirations to be like, Oh, I really want to make a record with so-and-so or I'm, you know, I just, you know, as you can imagine, and, and being, you know, being a musician, you know, like the journey is always like this anyway. You just don't, you know, you can yeah. aspire to certain things and then it just all of a sudden you're going down a different path that you didn't expect. But that path actually leads to a whole other circumstance of, of things that that are just as rewarding or if, if it, you know, in, or more rewarding than what you expected. And then that becomes just part of your uh your narrative right you just uh, sure. you go oh i'm doing this now and okay and i'm just gonna do this as well as i can right and then when that's finished i'll see what else is comes but even still and... you you haven't limited yeah. yourself to just blue rodeo you guys you started up yeah. uh cnc surf factory as well yeah. and yeah. whereas other musicians they get in they have that opportunity to be in a band of that level well then they just work at that but right. you're right. not you're not limiting yourself to that you're trying new things and right kind of exploring exploring you know new new growth opportunities i suppose or yeah, just enjoying you, music that you love as well yeah and i think you're trying to extract things from your past maybe and that because i've been around long enough that i you know, as it felt like my influences were not so narrowly defined they could i'm a bit of a you know i'm a bit of a sort of broad palette sure. i love love all kinds of guitar players and so then some points i just think well you know what i, I have to serve this song 
style in this way because you know that's that's what makes it work the best but then where other things are are available to me you know like i do love like i love that early 60s instrumental music it kind of came out of the high sort of you know came out of the rockabilly thing and then into like the early surf bands so i always loved that music i thought well why don't i just try and come up with some things that are in that flavor and see what happens so they're just sometimes they're just like trying a different paintbrush, you know, and they're all part of the same sort of sense of your of where you think your your best um, style or your best, you know, influences come out. And uh, well, the surf and, uh, music gives you an excuse to buy a jazz master. So I'm thinking yeah, that's, that's a good a, call. That's always a good call. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> And, uh, you know, the funny thing is I don't play a jazz master in the surfing. I play a Strat. So, which nobody likes Strats, right? Except when they hear them in these other ways, you know? So right. I, I always love Strats, but I, you know, but I always said, no, no, no. It's like, think of it like Hank Marvin playing a Strat or, you know, this guy playing a Strat, like Dick Dale. Don't think of it as the, you know, as, as, as necessarily in this way of seeing a Strat. Right. So, so yeah, so I, yeah, you're right. It, it, it absolutely opens up a whole other door to play, <laughs> you know, jazz masters and Jaguars. And so, yeah, it's all part yeah. of the same thing. I, yeah. I'm, you know, I'm just, uh, I really, I feel like I'm a student of all this all the time. I'm just trying to find my own little, you know, voice and put things out, you know, into the, atmosphere that hopefully connect with people and uh you know yeah cool well, you know in that way I, I can't think of a better fit for you than blue rodeo because i've i've always i may i know what do i know but I've, I've always sort of corrected some i think blue rodeo was sort of the one of the first bands to slide into something called alt country because i wouldn't yeah. put them and say they're not a country band there's certainly yeah. a lot more than one four five etc whatever yeah, but they're yeah. definitely a storytelling band so when you say look i like to dance around the edges of all sorts of genres i feel like wow what a perfect fit for blue rodeo because they can yeah. they can be straight ahead country sliding all the way over to almost like a jazzy type of thing yeah yeah it's so. exactly that that opportunity has definitely been there for that reason yeah yeah you're, you're totally right i so that's a good know, fit and everybody accepts that there's also there's always an opportunity to try something that gives you like a much broader palette as a as a as songwriters, they get to have a lot broader palette to be able to draw from, and they didn't get pigeonholed early on in the way that some bands do. So, so they're able to sort of create this broad palette potential. And then over 35 years, they've been, that's just what they've been doing. So sure. as writers, and then we come in and it's like, I'm playing this song like Johnny Marr, not Johnny Cash, you know, <laughs> and it works. Yeah. Because all kinds of potential in the way that you yeah so that's that's literally how i come to the landscape sometimes colin if you're ever in toronto and you're you're feeling lonely and you just want to talk about guitars and amps call me uh, man i'm i'll i'm up for it you're in toronto <laughs> i'm in waterloo oh okay I'm, I'm always up for talking about guitars and amps and okay you know. likewise if you want to know anything or you want to see anything or you're a What's yeah. your favorite, like, what's your dream guitar? Like, what's your, like, island dream guitar, if you could pick one? Yeah, that's that's a really good question. I mean, I'm, I already feel like I've got the, I have a 58 uh, Tweed Deluxe and a 65 Blackface. And 
Honestly, okay. yeah, I can sit great. in front of those amps and strum a G chord all afternoon. I mean, my wife thinks I've got a disease. So she, what is well, wrong no. with you? What's wrong with me? No, but oh. Matt, so but just, just so we can end this, like what would be one of your, you know, I don't know, like desert island guitars. Yeah, you know what? I, I was born in 68 and I, I think to have a 68 telly would be because i agree with you okay. you can you your telly is your it's my go-to right i've got a few yeah. i don't have a collection like yours but i have a few guitars that i gig with that do different things yeah. but the telly if i had if i just had one and my yeah. drummers my drummer's always yelling at me like dude why do we have so many guitars on this stage and pedals come on so yeah the telly would be and a 68 telly yeah. i'd have yeah. to sell a car for but yeah. you know well, if you ever find yourself wanting to get one, I, you know, I'm your guy. You I know the I, people. I, I know people, you know. Broker the deal. Actually, the one telly, the telly I had on the I have on the road, that's the 68 telly. Is it? Oh, no way. Oh, the the yeah. one you would have seen me playing the blonde uh, rosewood yeah. board. That's a 68. And then, that's yeah, nice. so, all right. Well, well let me ask you, let me ask you this then, because I'm pretty sure. So if I, if I get a 68 telly, does yes. it come with a couch in your living room? Because I might be living there for a small <laughs> amount of time. This is this is there's some strings attached to this, my friend. <laughs> well, 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 we'll you know maybe we'll have the kid glove your wife a little bit and tell her yeah. like, this, is a, this is a lifetime investment. They're good investments, you know. Right. Happens, you can sell it, and make more money, and yeah, yeah. There's a there's a right. way we can make it. We can make it so it'd be okay for you. You know? Okay, best of luck with that, Lance. <laughs> oh, man. That's funny. I want to thank you for hanging out with us today. I know we've taken up a bunch of your time, and Andrew and I certainly uh, so, so appreciate it. We end every episode with something we call the lightning round, which means we're okay. going to ask you 10 questions, and we're going to give you the answer. It's either A or it's B. You just have to choose one. It's a highly unscientific okay. way of okay. people getting to know Colin Cripps. Okay. Uh, but I wanted to I wanted to get my thank you in uh, first because I, I can't tell you how much we appreciate it. And we're looking forward sure. to uh, getting to see you play real soon. All right. Let's hit it with our rapid fire round. Bullish or bearish? Ooh, bullish. Amps, 65 blackface or 50s tweed? 65 blackface. Telecaster? Nice choice. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Telecaster or a Gibson 335? Kelly. Larger concert venues, such as the Center in the Square or a stadium gig? Uh, center in the Square. Beach or a trail? Trail. Small town or big city? Big city. How do you link to get your news? Print or online? Print. Grunge or ska? Oh, I'm going with ska. Cabernet Sauvignon or Merlot? Oh, there's no, there's no C, right? There's no burgundy. <laughs> <laughs> I knew we couldn't get through 10 questions. Everybody yeah. always wants an alternative. Okay, caps. so close. All right, Capsov. Ah. And we're going to finish it off with B.B. Uh. King or Eddie Van Halen. Oh, my. That's a tough one. Uh, Eddie Van Halen. And that has been another episode of Backstage Lowdown. <laughs> nice job, Colin. Colin thank you so much for helping us out today and sitting in on our show. Um, if Laura's listening, thanks for telling me to to reach out to call him most appreciate it uh that was that was fantastic thanks so much again oh pleasure thanks yeah, guys we appreciate it colin 